Good morning, everybody, and welcome to El Paso Bible Church. It is good to see you guys. Looking forward to our time together as we worship God, as we fellowship, and we are encouraged by the teaching of God's Word. Uh, I'm looking at the bulletin. I hope you got one on your way in this morning. Uh, front page, Awana resumes August the 24th, and that is a uh, kids program. We have a sign-up sheet in the lobby every Wednesdays from 6 to 8 or so. Uh, we also have uh, women's Bible studies starting up again in September, both morning and evening Bible studies. So uh, look forward to that, ladies. And uh, we don't have it in, uh, I was going to say menu, we don't have it in the program, but we, the men do have a triple B coming up, right? Uh, August the 20th. Yeah, for some reason it's not in the bulletin, but August the 20th will be uh, putting some invitations up on Facebook and through the church app. And last but not least, youth, we're meeting tonight at 6, 6 to 8 p.m. If you are in 6th grade or 12, 11th or 12, and you are still in high school, uh, you're welcome to come. I encourage you to come. So today I'm reading uh, Psalms chapter 119, verses 90 through 94. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances. For all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Shall we pray? Uh, Father, we do thank you this morning for your love. And the opportunity we have to come together as your body, as a church, and worship you. Uh, the psalmist says that we should sing praises and give you thanks for, for you are good. And we ask that we may meditate and think about that this morning, that you are a good God. And that you have our best interest at heart. Amen. Would you stand with us, church? Takes but a second. Knowing the battles won, 
for you have never failed me still stands great is your faithfulness faithfulness I'm still in your hands this is my confidence you've never failed me yet Still stands, great is your faithfulness. 
Children, you guys can go to Children's Church if that's what you do. You're welcome to stay in Big Church also if that's what your parents want, us, want you to do. I never get any takers on that one. I don't know what's, uh, what's happening, you know. Oh, well. Oh, that's right. That's why we have it. Good morning again. Now they're gone. All right, not that it's a better morning because they're gone. We're just going to say it again. <laughs> Ran across. Ryan De La Pena was sitting by himself over there for 37 seconds, and I felt like I interrupted his solitude for a minute. You know, because fathers have a problem getting that sometimes, you know. But uh, yeah, we're going to be here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 uh, this morning. We're going to begin a new section, but we have a, a lot going on uh, in our church this morning. Um, this week, and uh, I'd like to open us in prayer in light of that. Uh, specifically, um, well, Steve is s- serving. He's not in here at the moment, but he's uh, headed down to MD Anderson this week for a procedure, so we want to pray for him. And uh, Janice just had a procedure, so we're going to continue to pray for her, all right? And she's doing well, but uh, she's here this morning as well, so we need to give praise to the Lord for that, and we want to continue to do that. Um, and there are so many other things going on, um, that uh, I would miss out on the list if I started doing it. And then, you know, I get people mad at me. I like people to not be mad at me. So I'm going to just pray for all of the things, but those in particular. So if you would join with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day, uh, and we do thank you that you provide for us, that you protect us from things that are physical as well as spiritual, that you are the healer. And Father, we pray that you would... uh, stretch out your hand over those of the surgeons this week, uh, that they would, in fact, be guided uh, by your power uh, in, the, in the exercise of their responsibilities. Uh, Father, pray for success. We pray for success in the procedure and in the healing that takes place afterwards, the recovery. We thank you uh, for Janice's recovery uh, so far, and we thank you for the, that success. Uh, and we anticipate and we, we know of nothing else that we can ask for but for those kinds of results and that kind of grace in the lives of these individuals, but also, Father, for the sake of the church 
And Father, we know from reading your word that you preserve individuals frequently uh, for the sake of the body. Uh, even Paul himself didn't know which to prefer, to go home to be with you or to continue on in the flesh. And Father, at that time, it was your plan for him to be here in the flesh and serve the church. And Father, we rely on that example today. And we ask for it unashamedly and unapologetically. Father, I pray for the numerous other things that are, that are going on, the hurts that need healing, uh, that may not be physical. Father, the various illnesses uh, that we experience, but also the, the relationships uh, that are damaged without any outward sign. Father, that you would also restore those. Father, I pray that your blessing on our time and your word today, and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you would open up in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, we're going to continue there. Now you remember, we're going to talk about the Lord's faithfulness today, and this is, this is an important message for this week. The Lord is faithful, and we've been talking about that because largely the admonitions in First and Second Thessalonians have been essentially to stay the course, right? In First Thessalonians, uh, Paul described what they were doing as being a pattern replication, that they faithfully replicated the pattern that, that was given by Jesus Christ, that was exemplified by Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and that it was continued. And shortly after, again, Second Thessalonians is written, in which recently we understood the imperatives here, the commands to be to hold fast and to stand firm, right, in pattern replication in faithfulness, in holding on to the things that were handed down from the apostles, the things, the, the traditions. Remember the word y'all all went, when we said it, right? Traditions, the things handed down from the apostles. Those were the things that they were to hold fast in, that they were to stand firm in. And they were supposed to be immovable in holding on to those things. Now, occasionally, there is also made mention of, I don't want you to be moved. I want you to be immovable. I want you to be stalwart. I want you to be unagitated, right? Do you feel agitated sometimes? Lately, I'm on edge a little bit. Every once in a while, I was like, Josh, where did that come from? Well, it may have been a moderate level of agitation that was unmanaged for the moment. may have been. I will admit to that occasionally. Occasionally, people tell me I'm overreacting to things um, out of Scripture within the body occasionally. I think I probably do need to explain that. It may seem like an overreaction, but you guys have a different expectation than I do, I think, in life. I expect to be doing this from prison in my lifetime. I also don't expect to live that long. Even if I just, if my dad had known that he would be dead at 63 years, he'll be with the Lord at 63 years old, which is 19 years from now for me. He would have made a lot of different decisions, I think. Wouldn't you? And he's not the only one to go to be with Jesus young in my family. So you may see an overreaction sometimes when I say certain things. I may see simply urgency. So can you give me some benefit of the doubt? On, on urgency versus overreaction? I'd ask that of you. I don't want you to just be undisturbed 
or unagitated. I want you to be peaceful, certainly, in your life. I want you to be able to rely on Christ and to rest in, in who you are in Him. That's half the definition of abiding in Christ, right? That is the key to fruitfulness. That's John 15. The other half of abiding in Christ, resting in who I am and doing what He says to do. Two things. The key to abiding in Christ. The key to fruitfulness, usefulness, to standing firm, to holding fast in this life. Now, in order to do that, of course, Paul has to make sure that they have a rock-solid understanding of where they are in God's plan for humanity. That they have a particular placement and a particular purpose in the time in which they existed, what we would describe as a dispensation here at El Paso Bible Church. An economy, an oikonomia, is the way the New Testament talks about it. This era of God's working. We are as the church, and I think most people agree that we are what is called an inter-advent entity, right? We, the church exists after Christ's first coming and before his second coming. But we are even more narrow than that if we take Paul seriously here in First and Second Thessalonians, aren't we? Y'all are still confused because you think everything in between Christmases is inter-Advent, right? But that's not it. <laughs> it's not that kind of Advent, the Advents of Christ. We are an inter-Advent people. But Paul has described something actually more narrow than between simply the first and the second coming. Everybody holds to that. Everybody that is within the confines of orthodoxy, right? There, there are some people who believe that everything in the Bible has been completed, including somehow the allegorical spiritualized return of Christ, that it's simply his return in your hearts, which is not only foolishness, but it's heresy. Okay? Because Scripture doesn't allow for that. So those people, I don't care what they think, actually. If you miss that one, I don't even care what you have on your grocery list, much less what you have to say about the Bible. But within the confines of orthodoxy, everybody understands that, that we are inter-advent. Right, but more narrowly, we are anticipating a particular event, which is the next event, which is what Scripture refers to as the catching up, the harpazo, what you have heard called the rapture, what Paul also calls the apostasia, right, the physical departure, relocation of the church that has to come first, he says. Paul has given us that. And that's why he can give us these commands, to hold fast, to stand firm, right? Because we're not anticipating, experiencing the wrath of God poured out on this earth. Everything you face, everything I face, understand this, it can be faced. Every single thing in this life. Now, do you feel overwhelmed in your life sometimes? Uh, BJ does. The rest of y'all are good to go. The rest of y'all are totally fine, huh? I'm on my dozenth time for the day right now. This is a little bit uh, overwhelming, just doing this every week, by the way. You know, problems with uh, feelings of unworthiness, just stand up and teach the Bible every Sunday, twice. You're overwhelmed in your life. Understand, the point of that is... Scripture teaches us that everything that we face in this life can be stood against, and you can stand firm, and you must 
hold fast, and Christ has enabled you to do that by His Spirit. Everything. All the things, as they say on social media. You can stand for and you must. I must. It makes a big difference in my life. <clears throat> to not only know that the thing that is in front of me can be faced, but everything that ever could be in front of me in this life can be faced. And you can hold fast. And you can stand firm. Does that make a difference in your life? You don't have to roll. You don't have to faint. You don't have to fall over. And you don't have to run. Hold fast. Stand firm. That's what he said. In doctrine and practice, the traditions that were handed down from the apostles, uh, it's not all the other garbage that we're taught we have to do as a church in order to be successful according to some weird standard of success. There's a lot of garbage that comes through almost unfiltered into our ears as church members and as pastors especially. This is what you got to do. You know, you got to make this happen. You got to do this. You got to do that. that. Those things, it is the very things that are handed down by the apostles that are important. What Scripture tells us to believe and what Scripture tells us to do as the church. Now verse 1 of chapter 3 starts this way. Finally, now, I want you to understand, this is the preacher's finale. He's still got a whole chapter of information here. This is the preacher's finale when he says finally. But it's the last section. That's what he means by that. Finally, brethren, believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. So understand, when we read the New Testament, especially the epistolary books, the letters, we want to make sure that we understand the imperatives first. The imperatives in the prior section were hold fast, stand firm. This one it creates a reciprocal relationship, right? The Paul, Silas, and Timothy cohort here are constantly giving thanks in a worthy manner for the church at Thessalonica. And the church at Thessalonica is supposed to reciprocate by praying for those individuals, pray for them, that their work would be effective. Pray for us that the Word of God is going to run rapidly, literally is what it says. It, it, it would just full throttle, unimpeded, out from here, just as it did with you. Pray for us that we would be able to replicate that pattern as we go and preach the Word of God. Now, you... <laughs> Paul's an interesting character, isn't he? Y'all remember Thessalonica? Don't read this in a vacuum. People went out and got mercenary rioters to drive Paul out of Thessalonica, to beat him out of the city. They had to go and purchase a bond to get him to be released. The church at Thessalonica was experiencing frequent persecutions and frequent problems because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of the way that they were growing in the Lord such that they could easily be deceived that they were experiencing the day of the Lord, and Paul had to cut, it, cut that out, make it straight, say, you're not in the day of the Lord. This may be rough, but you can hold fast, and you can stand firm, and you must hold fast, and you must stand firm and continue. And that's what he's praying for. 
Now, most of us might go, well, I don't really pray for people to get kicked in the head repeatedly, but that's what that sounds like, right? We want the word of the Lord to go forth just like it did with you in Thessalonica, folks. Really? (laughs) You want mercenary rioters to beat the snot out of you and be driven out of the city and have to get somebody to buy you out of jail? Everywhere you go sounds like a real party, man. But that's what they want. We want to be just like that. The American church has a hard time sometimes praying for persecution, don't we? In the same breath, you're like, oh, church is weak and infantile. You know what fixes weak and infantile? You know what fixes weak? When we say infantile, we're not talking about real infants, right? When you talk, an infant, we don't say an infant is being infantile, do we? We say a baby's being a baby. When we use the word infantile, we mean somebody that shouldn't act like an infant, right? So when we say the church is an infantile, it's acting like a baby. Do you know how a grown-up gets to be grown-up, spiritually speaking, from being an infantile and weak to being strong, holding fast, and standing firm? I think Scripture only knows one way, and that is to suffer faithfully. It's to suffer faithfully. That is it. I told you, I'm not overreacting. I just don't have time. And in the same breath, we say, please, Lord, relieve us from suffering. And boy, this church is irritating. It's a bunch of babies. You can't pray both things. You can't complain that the church is weak and infantile and pray that the Lord would remove all suffering from your life. James tells us that. The book of James. Let endurance have its perfect result. What we pray for is, Jesus, please take away everything I would have to endure. Because I don't care about the perfect result. That I would be complete and lacking in nothing. Pray for us, he said. Not that he would relieve us from all suffering, but that the word of God would spread and be glorified. And that we will be rescued, Ruamai here, not Sozo, rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have the faith. Pray for us. Pray for us that we have been delivered, rescued from these types of people. Now that's uh, pretty critical to understand, I think. What the nature of that prayer request. See, you can't pray for these people, right? That's not part of our tradition, right? We don't pray to or for people who have passed on and who are with the Lord. Do we? I mean, you could. You could also try to put a square peg in a round hole. There's no need to do that. You can't pray for Paul, Silence, and Timothy, but you can pray that the word of God would spread rapidly. You can pray that in spreading rapidly that the word of God would be glorified. 
and those who receive it. So it's important. We should be praying for those things, even if we can't pray for those individuals. We can pray for our missionaries specifically. We can pray for ourselves. We have missionaries sitting right here in this, in this church that tell people about Jesus all the time. Thank you. As soon as I tell people I'm a pastor, no more words. They don't say a single thing. I can tell you guys what Jesus wants you to hear, but my vocation makes it nearly impossible, nearly impossible to evangelize the way that y'all do. It just is a fact of life. I mean, it's almost like I walked up to him and I said, well, my church pays me to tell you about Jesus. Men, married men. Is that going to work? Well, I'm obligated to speak kind words to you, wife. Somebody pays me to do this. Is your wife going to perceive of that as being any kind of reasonable, real, genuine form of love? No. That's what I, essentially, that's what I run into. You got to do that. You can pray for that. But who are these perverse and wicked men that Paul wants to talk about? Who are these guys? He explains it. He says, these are people that don't have the faith. My translation leaves the article out of there, and I think that's a mistake. There is a definite article there. Not all have the faith. It's articular. And when Scripture says that they have they don't have the faith, or they do have the faith, or you should be faithful to the faith. He is not talking about the moment that they trust in Jesus Christ or don't. He is talking about those things that are handed down, the traditions, the things that they ought to believe and the things that they ought to do. Yes? He's talking about what scriptural commands are supposed to guide our life, the things that we're supposed to believe and the things that we're supposed to do. So I think it's kind of a big deal to leave the article out of there. Because that makes you think that these people are unbelievers. If Paul wants to talk about a bunch of unbelievers that are persecuting and oppressing him, what does he call them? The world? Something like that. No, no, no. This is a group that he has to specify. These are people, in my understanding that believe in Jesus Christ, but do not embrace the traditions that were handed down, the faith. Now, you have a particular understanding of what the word perverse means in English, right? It's not polite. Most of you wouldn't even say it in mixed company, probably. You wouldn't say it in your mama's house, not in her living room. I mean, if you just call it, I mean, these, imagine, just make it a noun, perverts. You have a very particular understanding of what that means, right? Well, the Greek word is atopon, atypical, outside of standard. So, yeah, your understanding could be part of that, but it's much broader than that. It's outside of the faith. Things that are not according to standard. Here's a standard and here's them, right? It's like that picture you see, you, the point, you know, going over their head. They missed it. They don't behave properly. 
They do not behave according to the traditions. They don't behave according to the faith. Atapos. Wicked. Paneros means something or someone that is actively seeking harm. Somebody who's malicious. It's malice. Does, is that what the faith teaches you to do to other believers? You're supposed to actively seek their harm? I've messed up a lot of years of preaching if that's the case. These people don't behave properly. They act maliciously and aberrantly within the body of Christ. He said, pray to protect us from the world or pray to protect us from the empire, pray to protect us from that. We would all easily understand that, but I think it's important that we do understand the reference. These are people who have believed in Jesus Christ. They are justified people. They're going to heaven when they die who's, who misbehave badly and are acting maliciously towards those who preach the gospel. We find that all over the New Testament. They started as soon as Paul started journeying. Many people who were Judaizers, some of whom probably were unbelievers, but many of whom were, followed him around and tried to undo everything, actively harm his ministry. Every day of his life, every day. So let me ask you, though, I mean, you, this is reasonable. It doesn't have to, it has to make sense, right? Most of you all probably grew up in church spend a lot of time in church. Can believers misbehave? Yeah. Can believers be malicious towards each other? Now, y'all didn't say that nearly as loudly. <laughs> say it like you mean it. Yeah. Should they? No. Should and could, man. Yes, they can. They can misbehave. And they can act maliciously. Paul didn't pray to protect them from the world or rescue them from the world. He prayed to rescue them from perverse and wicked men because not everybody does what they, they should. Not everybody behaves in a loving way, but sometimes they act maliciously towards those who preach the gospel. We expect that from the world, right? Okay. I've asked several questions in a row, and y'all have answered now. You expect that from the world, right? Paul doesn't have to tell you that, that it's wicked and perverse. But believers are an unexpected front. One of the most eye-opening experiences that I've ever had in my whole life was as a janitor in a large church down in San Antonio during college. You learn things about church from that point of view that you don't learn from this one. Probably a good idea to do both. We all hope that believers behave and edify, but the truth is that there are many who do not and who actively, maliciously, and wickedly attack those who proclaim and teach the Word of God. 
we got some elders who are kind of eld here. And they can agree with that. They can tell me that I'm right here. Now, I know I'm right because I have, in my time at El Paso Bible Church, read every single last word of every single meeting this church has ever had. And let me tell you something. I don't, didn't look black and blue, but I felt black and blue when I got done. This church is about 50 years old or so right now. Rough. Uh, there's some ambiguities. When the filing was and when was actually me. But about 50 years old. About 10 times longer than most churches last, by the way. They have about the same success rate as a mom-and-pop restaurant when they're planted. That means uh, four out of five are gone in five years. Sometimes, usually a lot less. I've been the pastor here for nearly a fourth of that time. Twelve years total. All that information comes in and I look at the, the stuff that I've read and the stories that I've heard in that time and the things that I've experienced over those years. The problems that the world has caused at El Paso Bible Church have been next to nothing. Just about zero in comparison <laughs> to the problems that arose because of fleshly believers in the church. That's another way of saying perverse and wicked believers in the church. Etapas and paneros. People that woke up that morning and decided instead of loving people, they were going to act maliciously towards other believers in the body of Christ. Yes, elders? We got some elders that have been here a while. Y'all been, how long have you been here, Ernie, since 1984, 83, something like that? Somewhere in there, yeah. About the same time for you guys, right, Bill? Steve's not in here. He's still serving, by the way. He's getting ready to drive to Houston tomorrow, and he's in children's church today. He'd been here a long time. Not quite that long. We have a charter member, Elder Emeritus, living down in Houston. He'll tell you the same thing. I see him once a year or so. The amount of trouble the world has caused for El Paso Bible Church just in our little microcosm is almost nothing. But you read those minutes of all those congregational meetings and you realize that there have been problems. Fifty years of church means you're going to have problems. And they were all caused by the flesh. What Paul calls a fleshly believer, right? Paul categorizes those, right? He says there's, there's the natural man, that's the world. There's the fleshly believer, dangerous, volatile, wicked, perverse and the spiritual. Only three types of people in the world today. We're not talking about genders. There's only two of those. But there's three types of people across those two genders. Many have malice in their hearts and they don't follow the Bible standards for behavior as believers and it's tragic. And those of us who are a part of El Paso Bible Church today need to pray against that malice and that wickedness and that misbehavior. We're doing pretty good, by the way. That doesn't mean, no, we got 50 years of precedent that says you could be going really good and then things can change rapidly. So we need to pray 
that things don't. We do. That the word of God goes forth, that it is glorified. That we do what God says, that we abide in Christ, that we rest in who we are, and we do what he says to do so that we can glorify him. That we would be preserved from it, rescued from it. Because not all believers are faithful to the faith. Right? We went over that. You go to heaven when you die, not because you hold fast, but because Jesus holds you fast. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to hold fast, right? That means that that has a benefit. You go to heaven when you die, you go in the presence of Christ from the moment that you are there, whether by rapture or by going to be with him because you have physically died and planted your body in the ground. You'll be with him forever, and that's because he holds you fast. But to keep your life from being agitated and hellacious and awful, we need to hold fast to the things handed down, the doctrines and the behaviors that come to the New Testament by the words of the apostles, like they did. Not everybody does. Not everyone is faithful to the faith, but, verse 3, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He will do that. Jesus is always faithful to this two particular ways. He will establish. That's what strengthen. We, we talk about en, en dumao. We talk about that. The idea to be strong in the Lord, to be oh, essentially well-rounded, be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing is what James would call it, but to be a strong person. This, this is a little bit different. It means to plant your feet somewhere, to be steadfast, to be made immovable. He will strengthen you. So he tells you to hold fast, and he empowers us to hold fast, right? That's the phrasing here. He will establish the church. He will set our feet down where they need to be, and he will protect us. He will guard us where he sets our feet. He plants our feet, establishes them where they ought to be, where he wants them to be, and he guards us there. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I grew up in church, spent a lot of years in youth group, spent a lot of other years volunteering in youth group, and, and it doesn't matter. You go to a youth group prayer meeting back in the, in the day, and there was going to be somebody, right, that prayed for that hedge of protection, right? Yes? There are so many hedges of protection prayed around, you can't cut the grass in a youth group camp, man. They're just in the way, all these hedges of protection. Right? That's not what we're talking about. It's not something spiritual, in a sense. it's not allegorical, it's not philosophical, and it's not even an object. He plants our feet here, say. <laughs> Y'all got your rear ends planted right now, but think, understand that. Plants our feet, and he guards us there. He does not delegate that. He does not ask for volunteers. 
He does not ask for elected officials to do it. Amen? Amen. They're weak. He himself stands guard over us where he plants our feet. He takes up the position of guard, of sentinel, of protector. Now, I know I I have a lot of illustrations in my life that relate to my children. I've been a father for a good number of years now. This one goes back away, so I think I'm safe. But you know that we have twins right now. They're almost, they'll be 22 in December. They got old. Well, I did not. It's the definition of a young parent is a parent with old kids. Right, guys? Yeah, I got old kids. I can't help it. But when those old kids were little, when the oldest kids were two, well, actually four days before they turned two, we had our third son, Simeon, who now lives among the Phoenicians. Pagans up there, the Phoenicians. When he was born, we would put him in, or Priscilla would almost often put them in a stroller because I was working three jobs and going to seminary and preaching and everything else. But I witnessed it, right? We would put Simeon in the stroller and Gideon and Mike would be in their little sandals and their little short overall, short pant overalls with plaid shirt underneath and their sippy cup tucked in their left arm. Cuter than anything, really. They were real cute. I don't know what happened, but they were cute once. And we'd be pushing them along in a stroller, pushing Simeon along in a stroller. And, you know, back then, before COVID, people might come and compliment you on your baby. And we blew on birthday cakes, too. And they would come, and they, we, li- we lived on the edge, man. And they would come up to you at Walmart or whatever, and they say, oh, that's such a cute baby. You know, whatever. And they come, and, and you know, especially in certain traditions, everyone wants to, to touch the baby. Yeah? On the head. Certain culture, everybody wants to do that. Uh-uh. Get in and Micah in their little sandals and short pants, chubby knees, eczema right on the crease of their knee, little cute chubby cheeks, and needed a haircut most of the time. Put their hand on that baby. Kept their elbow and their sippy cup up like this. You ain't touching that baby. You ain't touching that baby. Little warriors, man. Those are my boys. Armed with nothing but a sippy cup. Jesus doesn't need a sippy cup. He plants our feet where he wants them. And he guards us there from the evil one. Now that is an articular substantival adjective. Sometimes people ask me, how much do you really use the original languages in your teaching? Because like, it doesn't really seem like you do. I'm like, thank you. You're welcome. I, y'all could leave here confused every Sunday, or, we can, or I can use them the way I use them. But you need to understand this. An articular, substantival adjective means there's not a noun here. It's, a, it's an adjective that is describing a person. It's when you say he is the one who is known by being evil to the very fiber of his being. There is nothing good in the one who is evil. He's so evil, we don't need a noun. We don't need a name. We don't have to speak it. It's he who must not be named, right? It's a Harry Potter reference. They didn't name him anyway. 
He's evil to his very core. There is no ounce of his being that is not evil. And Jesus plants his feet between us and them. See, I've been told often that Jesus won't mess with me. I mean, not that Jesus, not, Satan won't mess with me. The evil one is not going to mess with me because I'm not important. That is not why Satan will not touch me. I am not that important. I'm nobody from nowhere doing nothing. But Satan would take me anyway if it weren't for Jesus holding me fast and standing between the place that he placed me and the evil one. And that's where you are too if you believe in Jesus and are in him. It's also why I can tell you again with confidence that nothing you encounter in this life requires you to fold or turn tail and run because you will never face the evil one. Not even Michael the archangel rebukes Satan, by the way. Jude tells us that. But Jesus plants himself between us and guards us. We're equipped to stand firm and to hold fast against anything else because of Jesus. Verse 4 says this, we have confidence in the Lord. We're persuaded, patho, we're persuaded in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So this cohort, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are already persuaded. They have this confidence, right, that this church is going to continue in the things that they have been doing. They're going to continue faithful in that pattern replication that they were commended for in the first letter, and they've been continuing that through this whole time. They should continually do the things they had been told and taught to do. That is all that we are asked to do, by the way. I tell people if you have 100 people in a room, you have 120 opinions as to what a pastor is required to do. Because some people can't make up their minds. If I ask somebody, what is a believer supposed to do in this world? I get a similar variety of opinions. We're to hold fast and to stand firm in what the Bible has told us to do only. That's all that's asked of us. Now, that, uh, understand, that is important. It is true whether what we are asked to do makes someone sad, right, or happy. It could make them sad. It could make them happy. It could make them sad happy if they're really complex, you know, at the same time, depending on how many personalities they're walking around with. It could make them angry. It could make them content. We're asked to do these things whether the seats are full or empty. We're asked to do them whether the bank account is full or empty. 
We're asked to do them, commanded to do them. I almost slipped. I almost made the maverick error. Finally watched that movie. Well, I didn't expect an invitation back. <laughs> They're called orders, maverick. Remember that part? No. Did I actually see a movie before you? Oh, you don't remember the parts that I remember. They're called orders. We're ordered to do that. Whether the seats are full or empty, whether the bank account is full or empty, whether people are smiling or raising pitchforks at us, whether we have a building or we don't, whether we're sitting in a pew or a cell, I had a a friend call me this last week. Uh, He's a pastor here somewhere in Texas. That's about as narrow as I'm going to get. He's a pastor somewhere in Texas. Now, that excludes a lot of space, right? We got some folks here from California. Can you imagine admitting that to scary old Pastor Josh? They're from California. They did it. They're brave. All the Californians I've met I like personally. I just know that a lot of them I wouldn't like if I did meet them, right? But he called me up this last week, and he had gotten a, a disturbing phone call. He, for the past four years, he's been pastoring a church plant, I guess you would call it. Uh, has a, an oversight body and a, and a, I don't know if it's even a larger church, but it's a church they, they refer to as the mother, the mother church. V- very papist sounding to me, actually, but uh, the mother church here. And they called him and said, we just don't have confidence in your leadership. We think your leadership has failed. Now, we speak Christianese as well as anybody here at El Paso Bible Church, right? It's weird, but we do it. And when I say that this person has had a leadership failure, it's like using the word pervert, right? You immediately jump to something. You jump to immorality. You jump to heresy, maybe. Some kind of doctrinal aberration, or doctrinal apostasy. None of those things. None of those things. We would disagree, he and I, on some doctrine, but nothing that I would say, you know, to burn him at the stake for. He's probably the nicest guy I've met in a long time, actually. He's real nice. Way nicer than me. Y'all got the short end of the stick, man. Way nicer. Way. I mean, not even in the same room, man. wasn't any of those things. You know what it was? Money. It's money. Now, they're paying their bills. They're paying their bills. They're, they're doing okay. By the way, most churches are not for profit, right? And we don't gauge their success or their activities based on how much money above expenses they pull in, right? I mean, that Right? That's kind of the definition. That's at least what we tell the IRS. But apparently that wasn't good enough. I'd like you to find a Bible verse that says that an elder should be the husband of one wife and be good at marketing and fundraising. As if those two things are co-equal. I won't wait and I won't hold my breath because I know it's not there. One of the advantages to doing this for a living, 
I can ask you all some semi-rhetorical question like that. I already have the answer to that. I had to remind him, the only thing that Christ demands of you is what he has commanded you to do. That is the definition of being faithful. And you can do that whether people are happy or sad or angry or content or have unreasonable, wacky expectations of you because you will not stand before the Bema seat of the Mother Church. You will not stand before the Bema seat of a political party. You will not stand before the Bema seat of any other entity. The singular experience that you will stand before is the judgment seat of Christ before which we must all stand. And it is only His standards that matter. Ever. We're just responsible for what Scripture tells us our job is. And we all have this job, to stand firm and to hold fast and to pray for the spread of God's Word. That's all of our jobs. Everybody in the whole church. And once we embrace that reality, we enjoy some freedom. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Once we understand what it is that is our responsibility between now and the rapture, and where the accountability relationship lies, who is going to assess our performance, our obedience, our faithfulness, then we are free. To love the way that God wants us to love and to stand steadfast in the place that Christ wants us to stand. Because we no longer have to engage in competition. We no longer have to chase our prideful desires because we're not accountable to them or what anybody else thinks of us. We can stand firm where Christ wants us to be and express the love that God has for other people. Because we know we have only one accountability relationship that matters, and that's to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this imperative. We thank you that you answer prayers and that you have commanded us to pray through your word for the spread of the gospel, for the word. And we thank you that understanding this accountability relationship clears a cloudy mind with astounding levels of input from all corners that we can understand simply what you want us to do and how to do it. We thank you for that clarity. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?